Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And I'm Chris. And we're the Film Flamers. And today we're bringing you one of the biggest blockbusters in horror film history. We are kicking off a month of deep dives into summer horror blockbusters. And I mean, fittingly, both are directed by Steven Spielberg. That's right. So, uh, starting chronologically, we're going to do Jaws first and then move into Jurassic Park next week. Exactly. Um, I know you're probably excited to talk about Jaws, right, Chris? I mean... Who wouldn't be? I, I mean, for real, it's, it's a fantastic, well-regarded movie. Just every time that I watch Jaws, or at least since I've met you, it just seems like uh, the kind of movie that you would like to like study for its craft you know so a little bit yeah it's it's definitely not one of my like horror picks um you know because it's not obviously uh i I would say it's not innately and obviously a horror movie when i think about horror movies you know what i mean and Mm -hmm. i think we'll get a little bit into how we talk about jaws later in this episode but yeah i'm I'm excited to talk about it as a probably a, a movie and a kind of a phenomenon especially its legacy um and kind of how it's incidentally a horror movie yep i completely agree So Jaws is a 1975 American thriller film directed by Steven Spielberg and based on Peter Benchley's 1974 novel of the same name. The film stars Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, Robert Shaw, Murray Hamilton, and Lorraine Gray. The first draft of the screenplay was written by Benchley himself, but Carl Gottlieb also got a screenwriting credit for rewriting the script during principal photography. Jaws was filmed on location in Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, and is considered to be the first major motion picture to be shot on the ocean, which resulted in a very troubled production, (laughs) going over budget and far over schedule. As the art department's mechanical sharks often malfunction, Spielberg decided to mostly suggest the shark's presence, employing an ominous and minimalist theme composed by none other than our favorite, or one of our favorites, John Williams, to indicate its impending appearances. Okay, before we go so far into the discussion that we'll need a bigger episode, this is Jaws. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him Jaws. This is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. Did you see that? 
barracuda. Devices. Huh? What? You yell shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. Is it true that most people get attacked by sharks in three feet of water, about 10 feet from the beach? Yeah. What we are dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. We're not only going to have to close the beach, we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark. Bad fish. But I'll catch him and kill him. Did you hear your father out in the water now? This shark? Swallow you whole. You're going to need a bigger boat. That's a 20-footer. 25. Three tons of them. Hold it up. He's coming straight for us. Don't screw it up now. Don't wait for me. Now! Shoot! None of man's fantasies of evil can compare with the reality of Jaws. Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus, Jaws. See it before you go swimming. During a beach party at dusk on Amity Island, a young woman goes skinny dipping in the ocean. While treading water, she's violently pulled under. The next day, her partial remains are found on shore. The medical examiner's ruling that the death was due to a shark attack leads police chief Martin Brody, played by Roy Scheider, to close the beaches. Mayor Larry Vaughn, played by Murray Hamilton, overrules him, fearing that the town's summer economy will be ruined and points out that the town has never had trouble with sharks. The coroner now concurs with the mayor's theory that the young woman was killed in a boating accident. Brody reluctantly accepts their conclusion until the shark kills a young boy in full daylight on a crowded beach. A bounty is placed on the shark, prompting an amateur shark hunting frenzy. Local professional shark hunter Quint, played by Robert Shaw, offers his services for $10,000. Meanwhile, consulting oceanographer Matt Hooper, played by Richard Dreyfus, examines the young woman's remains and confirms her death was caused by a shark, an unusually large one. This is substantiated when two local men attempt to catch the shark from a pier, which is destroyed and the men narrowly escape. When local fishermen catch a tiger shark, the mayor proclaims the beach is safe. The dead boy's grieving mother openly blames Brody for her son's death, leaving him guilt-ridden. Cooper disputes that it's the same predator, confirming this after no human remains are found inside of it. Hooper and Brody find a half-sunken vessel while searching the night waters in Hooper's boat. Underwater, Hooper retrieves a sizable great white shark's tooth embedded in the submerged hull. He drops it in fright after encountering the partial corpse of a local fisherman. Vaughn discounts Brody and Hooper's statements that a huge great white shark is responsible for the deaths and refuses to close the beaches, allowing only added safety precautions. On the 4th of July weekend, tourists pack the beaches. Following a juvenile prank in which the presence of a shark is simulated, the real shark enters a nearby estuary, killing a boater and causing Brody's oldest son, Michael, to go into shock. Brody then convinces Vaughn to hire Quint to hunt down the shark and kill it. Quint, Brody, and Hooper set out on Quint's boat, the Orca, to hunt the shark. While Brody lays down a chum line, Quint waits for an opportunity to hook the shark. 
Without warning, it appears behind the boat. Quint, estimating its length at 25 feet and weight at 3 tons, harpoons it with a line attached to a flotation barrel, but the shark pulls the barrel underwater and disappears. At nightfall, Quint and Hooper drunkenly exchange stories about their assorted scars, and Quint reveals that he survived the USS Indianapolis, where he and his fellow crewmen were tormented and hunted by sharks until rescue. The shark returns unexpectedly, ramming the boat's hull and disabling the power. The men work through the night to repair the engine. In the morning, Brody attempts to call the Coast Guard, but Quint, who has become obsessed with killing the shark without outside assistance, smashes the radio. After a long chase, Quint harpoons another barrel into the shark. The line is tied to the stern cleats, but the shark drags the boat backwards, swamping the deck and flooding the engine compartment. Quint prepares to sever the line to prevent the transom from being pulled out, but the cleats break off, keeping the barrels attached to the shark. Quint heads towards shore to draw the shark into shallower waters, but he pushes the damaged engine past the safety limits and the overtaxed engine fails. With the orca slowly sinking, the trio attempt a riskier approach. Hooper puts on scuba gear and enters the water in a shark-proof cage, intending to lethally inject the shark with strychnine, using a hypodermic spear. The shark attacks the cage, causing Hooper to drop the spear, which sinks and is lost. While the shark thrashes in the tangled remains of the cage, Hooper manages to escape to the seabed. The shark escapes and leaps onto the sinking deck of the boat, dragging Quint down and devouring him. Trapped on the sinking vessel, Brody jams a pressurized scuba tank into the shark's mouth and, climbing the crow's nest, shoots the tank with Quint's rifle. The resulting explosion obliterates the shark. Hooper resurfaces, and he and Brody paddle back to Amity Island, clinging to the remaining barrels. The end. That was exciting. So, uh, Jaws received glowing praise from test screenings in Dallas and Long Beach in March of 1975, prompting Universal to spend a lot of money on advertising and to release it very widely across North America. Jaws opened on 464 screens on June 20th, 1975. It shattered records during its original theatrical run. Here are just a few examples. It earned a record $7 million in its open weekend. It grossed a record $21 million in its first 10 days. It hit $100 million in less than 60 days. And in just 78 days, it had passed The Godfather as the highest grossing movie of all time at that point. It, were, it would remain the highest grossing motion picture until Star Wars released two years later. The records didn't stop in 1975, though. This year, thanks to COVID, Jaws opened again in more than 180 theaters, mostly the drive-ins, and made charts again, earning another half million at the box office and placing number two right behind another Spielberg classic, Jurassic Park. Ultimately, Jaws would gross $470 million against its budget of $9 million. So a hit. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Jaws has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes and holds a 90% audience score. The site's consensus reads, Compelling, well-crafted storytelling and a judicious sense of terror ensure Steven Spielberg's Jaws has remained a benchmark in the art of delivering modern blockbuster thrills. Roger Ebert gave the film four stars, calling it a sensationally effective action picture, a scary thriller that works all the better because it's populated with characters that have been developed into human beings. That's right. The New Yorker's Pauline Kael wrote that it was the most cheerfully perverse scare movie ever made, with more zest than an early Woody Allen picture and a lot more electricity, and it's funny in a Woody Allen sort of way. This lady has got some sort of like Woody Allen complex. Like, mm. if you're going to go watch a movie about sharks, the first thing that wouldn't pop into my head is like, 
this is like a Woody Allen movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not sure about that. But not all of the reviews were glowing, or about Woody Allen, of course. Charles Champlin of the LA Times disagreed with the film's PG rating, which I think I do too, saying that Jaws is too gruesome for children and likely to turn the stomach of the impressionable at any age. It is coarse-grained and exploitive work, which depends on excess for its impact. Ashore, it is a bore, awkwardly staged and lumpily written. I don't know. Bye, Felicia. Yeah, for real. Charles Champlin, you go suck it. Hallowell's film guide stated that, despite genuinely suspenseful and frightening sequences, it's a slackly narrated and sometimes flatly handled thriller with an overabundance of dialogue and, when it finally appears, a pretty unconvincing monster. Well, Spielberg would agree with that. Yeah, quite. Frankly. Despite those negative reviews, the film won a bunch of accolades. At the Oscars, it won Best Sound, Best Editing, and Best Original Score, and was also nominated for Best Picture. At the Golden Globes, it won Best Original Score as well, and was nominated for Best Picture, Best Screenplay, and Best Director. At the BAFTAs, it won Best Original Score, and Williams was nominated two times in this category, also for The Towering Inferno that year. So hmm. I think it's kind of like a dual win. Okay. Um, it was nominated for Best Actor, Richard Dreyfus, Best Director, Best Editing, Best Screenplay, Best Soundtrack, Best Film. Interesting that Richard Dreyfus was the call out there. I wouldn't even consider him a lead actor in this movie, but I mean, I guess they kind of share like lead billing. But best, yeah. I'd say Scheider is supposed to be the lead here. I think that if he were nominated in a supporting actor, will he probably have a better chance of winning something, I would imagine. Well, in the years since its release, Jaws has been cited by critics and industry professionals as one of the greatest movies of all time. It was ranked 48 on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies in 1998, but dropped to 56 for the 10-year anniversary re-ranking. AFI also ranked The Shark at 18 for its 50 Greatest Villains list. William Score ranks at number 6 for AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores list. Jaws ranked at the top of Bravo's 100 Scary Movie Moments. It has been featured on countless lists of great movies by many publications. In 2001, the United States Library of Congress selected to be included in the National Film Registry. I feel like we're covering a lot of those lately. Yeah, I mean, well, and it's good. I think if, I mean, for a podcast about horror movies or horror adjacent movies, right, that, you know, so many that we talk about get added into this list, you know, it makes me sort of really, really happy mm-hmm. that as a country, we are preserving these movies that I love so much. Jaws is the prototypical summer blockbuster, meaning it was the first, and is seen as a watershed moment in motion picture history. It played a major role in summer becoming the prime season to release big-ticket movies rather than the winter. The film spawned three sequels, none of which matched the critical acclaim or box office of the original. It also influenced countless movies throughout the years. Aside from movies, Jaws has been made into two theme park rides at Universal's Parks. Um, It's been a musical entitled Jaws, the musical, which premiered in 2004. It's uh, been five video games, a pinball machine and a slot machine. So let's uh, let's go through the movie a little bit. Yes, let's do that. So, um, you know, I know we normally break things up into acts, right? And I I was waiting for your notes because we always have at least like three or four acts to a movie. And to me, like Jaws has two acts, but I see. Yeah, I kind of broke it up into three, Mm -hmm. uh, but it really does. Like the original novel, I would say, has three major acts, right? But Spielberg really wanted to emphasize the third act the most. That was his favorite from the book. And that's really what is the most 
uh, faithful to the original material. Uh, the first two acts were kind of combined and rewritten uh, to support the third act more as far as like an emotional foundation. And so I've, I've really kind of uh, split the act one and two to like Jaws attacks and then kind of the hunt, mm-hmm. right? Versus the act three being the final act of killing Jaws. But you're right. Really, this is uh, two major acts, everything before they go on the Orca and everything after. And I read this book way back in my middle school years, you know, when I was like reading a whole bunch of used paperbacks and remotely anything horror I can get my hands on, especially books that were, you know, made into movies, right? Because I like to read the novel and then watch the movie. And this book is very different from the movie that we have. So, Mm -hmm. But yeah, so let's talk about the movie. Well, the movie opens with the death of uh, Chrissy Watkins, that young woman we mentioned in the synopsis, skinny dipping on the beach at night. That's right. So they're at this bonfire party and some guys drinking and making googly eyes at her. And the next thing you know, they're running through the beach and she's taking her clothes off and he's trying to take his clothes off. He's not very good at skinny dipping. (laughs) (laughs) He falls asleep. Yeah, but unfortunately, she is very good at skinny dipping and she's in the water before he could even pass out. So... But this is an interesting scene because, of course, you don't see Jaws. You're not supposed to yet. And even with the later decisions of not to show, you know, Jaws as much as Paul, I think he's only, whether Finn or full figure, he's only in the movie for four minutes. Yep. Right. And uh, but this was very interesting because we have the camera at water level and we're seeing her get grabbed and then kind of dragged left and right through the water. And it's a really interesting effect. And it holds up today, in my opinion. It's it's really quite harrowing agreed completely i think that the opening to this movie is just terrifying and i think that woman's performance is good she looks just horrified at what's going on you can only imagine like how much it hurts her you know in real life if this were happening and when she's grabbing onto that buoy and things you know i mean like it's it's really scary now the urban legend is that whatever contraption they had pulling her left and right um was actually breaking her ribs during that time. And so that her screams and the look of pain on her face is real. Uh, But later she, you know, called into a radio show and they had an interview with her and she said, absolutely not. She was not hurt. (laughs) And it was all acting. Yeah. I don't think that Steven Spielberg takes a a William Friedkin approach to directing his actors. Right. I mean, so like Friedkin would be known to like fire an actual bullet to like make people like jump and be scared and like traumatized his actors a lot. But Spielberg seems like a pretty nice guy. He could have just called a tippy head and she would have done it for free. Hell yeah. I would have done it for free. Come on. I'll get my legs chopped off. I don't care. (laughs) Flail wildly in the water. Yeah. (laughs) Anything for the animals. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) don't make fun of dippy she's a national treasure so then of course we go through the film and it's kind of setting up our characters uh you know starting with of course chief martin brody played by roy scheider and you know his back and forth really mainly uh uh with contrast to the mayor mayor Mm -hmm. larry vaughn played by murray hamilton and of course, Murray is political and is only thinking about, you know, the economy. And of course, this makes me think of, you know, COVID. All these people are dying and he's like, no, it's not, you know. Listeners, I promise that we are not picking these movies to talk about because of COVID, right? We just talked about Alien, which says the word quarantine about a thousand and one times. We did not choose it because of COVID. And we did yeah. not choose Jaws because of like the actions of this political figure in this movie. I think that we just like happened to do it and look how fucking timely it is. for real and i didn't even think about it until i was watching the movie for this recording you know and i was just like holy shit as far as you know people 
going against science or what's actually happening and facts and and saying no the economy is more important so let's throw some more bodies at it or the bodies don't matter mm-hmm. you know or just or even if they they don't want it to be true and they would shut down the beach they they do these mental acrobatics to kind of get out of it like it's a hoax or it's not real or it's not as bad as you think or or how can we know, spin like it that. <clears throat> yeah. yeah you know and you can see him kind of deceiving himself you know Clearly, that mayor knew that it was a shark anyway. That that moment that they're on that boat, that ferry, right? And uh, he's like, you know what happens if you scream shark? You scream barracuda. And people are like, huh? But you scream shark. You know, and we have empty beaches and things like yeah. that. I mean, he's just trying to find a way to spin it to, like, save his town. And ultimately, I mean, like, the townspeople want the beaches to be open, too. They want to make money. They also seem very concerned, right? Yeah. What's funny is I, I just literally saw an article uh, today saying 45 years ago, Jaws predicted we wouldn't close beaches for public safety. <laughs> <laughs> so, Even wah, wah. in the smartest state in the union in which you live, <laughs> there are still people like crowding beaches on hot days, right? Yeah, apparently. So, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. Pay attention to Jaws. Damn it. <laughs> so there's a lot of back and forth, and eventually we get the death of Alex Kintner, right? The boy uh, in full daylight. We get that famous Dolly Zoom with <sighs> uh, Roy Scheider's character, which I don't, I can't think of. And I've seen it all over the place, but that's the most famous and is probably the most effective because you are him, you are the audience in his face, just seeing that shark in the water and the boy getting attacked and everything. And uh, it's such a pivotal moment in the film. I think it's, to me, it's one of the most amazing uses of a camera being an emotion right i mean like or to establish emotion and fear right just that that quick zoom to his face is just incredibly famous incredibly effective something that like it's probably the thing that i remember most from jaws yeah and it was used a few times before that like i think in vertigo they would uh hitchcock would use it and he would actually move back but zoom in and i think in this case they were they were actually moving forward and zooming out so they reversed it for this shot and ever after i think um in a lot of film schools you know these teachers are actually referring to that movement as the jaws zoom yeah you know (laughs) i mean that's pretty much what i would call it colloquially you know I like this scene a lot because there's so much going on in the beach and we're we're really getting to know Brody's character and how he feels about the people that he's protecting as the sheriff of this community or police chief. And I mean, he's new to the community. It's his first summer. People seem to know him, but not really. And I mean, they're on this crowded beach and, you know, there's like lots of chat going on between him and the other couple that's with them. And he's constantly watching the water and he's ready to jump up and like react to anything that's happening, you know? Mm -hmm. And then that's a bad hat, Harry. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that guy's sitting there like talking to his face and he's like looking behind him to see the water. And you know that something bad is going to happen. And like Spielberg, really takes his time to develop that terror and that dread in that particular scene mm-hmm. to to masterful effect i i really enjoy the scenes of this movie you know in the early early parts of the of the film yeah just as a side note bad hat harry is actually the a production company that was started by brian singer based on that line and the images of two people on a beach with a, a shark fin behind them <laughs> <laughs> But that's right. just one of the lines he says to to one of the the people there uh, who comes up and is like, why would you close the beach or something like that? And he goes, that's a bad hat, Harry. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, when this boy dies, 
and that mother is standing on the beach like calling for him like ultimately she knows that he's dead right we see that piece of uh raft float up covered in blood right yeah and there's blood washing up on the beach too i believe yeah so i mean it's a it's a pretty uh pretty harrowing moment um i can't remember if hooper has already come into the story at this point i think he comes in no. after this right yeah, yeah. so I believe so. But at this point, we do have that hunting frenzy, right? Where they're saying, okay, we've got to take care of this by July 4th, you know, or the economy is just going to tank in the town. So they bring everyone together and basically offering money to catch this shark. That's when we meet Quint and Quint's offer for 10000 We don't see him again till later, uh, you know, but he's basically the only serious person there. Especially after, you know, the ocean is just like filled with boats of people just like half-assed <laughs> going out there to try and catch this giant fucking, you know, shark, you know, and they do actually end up catching that tiger shark, which was a real shark, by the way. They couldn't catch a big enough shark for that for the scene. So they've put, imported it from Florida and it stunk up to high heaven when they were shooting that and all of its organs were like hanging down to its mouth and so anyone that had to go up to it was getting sick oh god that scene, that's so. terrible yeah <laughs> sorry to say the things that don't make my fun facts <laughs> <laughs> oh so yeah the tiger shark is caught and the beaches are obviously safe at this point because we mm-hmm. have this giant shark but uh this is where we really get to know richard dreyfus's character hooper a lot so yeah he comes he, in mm-hmm, he's there he shows up and he uh, most famously and comedically i think in this movie is when he goes to look at the remains of the swimmer right chrissy mm-hmm. and he's like talking into that microphone and he's like can i have a glass of water i mean like <laughs> <laughs> he's completely like put off by what he sees on the slab and yeah. um or in the bucket really yeah, I mean, like, there wasn't a whole lot to, like, look at. So, but then he shows up at Brody's house, you know, eventually, and they go cut that shark open. Yeah, but before that happens, we do get, you know, because there's been this back and forth, and, you know, and Brody has been blamed by the boy's mother. It's like, you knew that this was a thing. The shark had killed, you know, this girl and maybe possibly some other, someone else, and you didn't shut down the beaches. She blames him, not the mayor, for not yeah, shutting come, down the beaches. Yeah, she walks up and slaps him. You know, and so he's frustrated with with feeling guilt for that, obviously feeling, you know, angry and frustrated that he can't do anything because of the mayor, you know, and so that we get this beautiful moment, um, you know, kind of after dinner at night when it's just he and his wife and his son. And I guess his wife is kind of clearing the table and he's finishing up and his son in one of the most studied scenes in the film, if not the most studied uh, scene in the film it's you know it's also one of the quietest and it grounds the film in an, kind of an unexpected way and it really humanizes Roy Scheider's character reminding him of what's most important and it's essentially just the son kind of imitating him as he you know drinks his you know his glass and uh and everything else and the son's kind of doing that in kind of in a sweet way not in a funny way or a making fun of way and it has no dialogue until the end where he asks the son to give him a kiss and the son asks why and he says because i need it you know and this is really beautiful quiet you know visual uh, heavy visual storytelling scene that really just grounds this film in in a, in a really emotional way and i think it's one of the most important in the movie I agree because we we have to see Brody interacting with his children a little bit because it really sets up 
you know, another part in the movie that's coming up soon after this. I mean, we know how much he loves his family. He loves his children. It's very important to him. You know, they don't get into a whole lot of the backstory as to why he's come to Amity, you know, but Mm -hmm. he clearly has a backstory. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with his family and his care for them. And this is Spielberg at his finest because it's really one of the first times in one of his horror adventure films that he uses this kind of scene to ground the entire movie emotionally. And we scenes like this again in his films for like E.T., uh, Poltergeist, we certainly see scenes like this, these quiet moments, uh, Jurassic Park even, you know, and more as he goes through his career uh, where he, you know, obviously this film is supposed to be about, you know, uh, a, you know, a murderous shark or deadly dinosaurs or ghosts or this or that, but it's really also about this other thing, you know, at its heart and it has an emotional core. And so Steven Spielberg had a way of doing that, that kind of brought these movies outside of their high concept and into a reality where just your average film goer would be able to appreciate and watch it on that level. So two things. One, are you insinuating that Steven Spielberg directed Poltergeist? And B, (laughs) (laughs) you're absolutely right. And I think this is what Spielberg does so well in like all of his movies is that he really finds like these quiet moments to to show you like who these characters are, how they interact with other characters in the movie and how they interact with the story itself. And he really does find quiet times in really loud, bombastic action adventure or adjacent kind of movies to display these things. And you have to have good grounded characters in any story. If your character is unbelievable, your story is unbelievable. Nothing's going to work. Yeah, and a lot of people try and do this, and it's actually used for exposition. Um, You know, one example comes to mind is like Independence Day. There are those quiet moments. They do that after having learned from Spielberg and others, but they also kind of use some quiet moments for exposition, which I think is can be a problem. You know, uh, I think you should show rather than tell. And Steven Spielberg does a lot of showing here. Yeah, he can quickly work through a lot of exposition and like character development in a very fast way, quietly, no dialogue, just a series of images. And it, it really works for him when he does it in movies. Yeah. Of course, then we get Brody and Hooper going to do the the autopsy and, of course, finding, uh, you know, the corpse essentially in the boat, which is one of the biggest uh, jump scares, I think, in the whole movie, right? Every fucking time. And like, I, I forget about it every time, too, which is why. And so, I mean, so I've seen Jaws just a handful of times, maybe like six or seven. <clears throat> and when I was watching... That's a handful? For me, that's a handful, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so when I was watching it on this last rewatch for the podcast, I completely forgot about it, you know? And I mean, I was drinking and whatnot, like I normally do when I watch a movie. Yeah. And I like shrieked out loud. <laughs> That corpse popped up. So, I mean, effective. Yeah, but they do find that shark tooth, and they're able to kind of prove more or less, you know, that with that combined with the with the autopsy, that they've still got their shark, you know. Um, But the mayor still is just like, nope. And so the Fourth of July commences. We're kind of given a red herring with the you know the prank that happens, the juvenile prank, where they actually have like the shark fin. Yeah, like going along in the water. (laughs) And uh, of course, he is told, you know, uh, his kid, Chief Brody's, Roy Scheider's son, Michael, to go over to the pond side, the estuary, essentially, because it's safer there. But that's where the shark goes. And it ends up killing, uh, you know, a boater on July 4th and putting his own son into shock. Yeah, I mean, that's another really good scene, too, because like... (sighs) 
no matter what he does, he he can't seem to like win against the government in this particular town. He wants the beaches to be safe, and all he's given is just like you know extra people to sort of watch, and barely enough extra people because you know the season hasn't fully started and people haven't been deputized or whatever. And so we're like stuck in a moment in this movie where we know that something bad's going to happen. It could have been prevented, but I mean, obviously this is how plot works. Mm -hmm. And he's like, again, poised and ready on that beach to do whatever he can. I don't know what he thinks he's going to do. If a shark pops up aside from call people out of the water, Mm -hmm. but he sort of, um, tells the lifeguard to not scream shark or anything like that. And that's exactly what happens. And we get this like trample effect on the beach. And I mean, just like the, the evacuation from the ocean is just as dangerous as the shark being in the water. These people don't stand a chance on this beach at all. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the piranha Two, where, you know, that same kind of thing happens, but like everyone just panics and basically just as many people die from the panic, you know, (laughs) and the boat motors like ripping up people's hair off and stuff. Then, uh, then the piranhas, you know, are causing damage, you know? So it's, it's kind of like brings that to like 10 more levels higher, but, uh, you know, I'm kind of surprised he didn't show more people getting injured just in the panic, you know, and people getting left behind. Well, I assume that it would be a very harrowing, it is a very harrowing scene to watch, you know? And I mean, like it could have been worse than what we know and maybe got cut or something like that. But, but he I mean, well, smartly because at the same time there is a real attack happening or about to happen. Right. And right. so we have, we have to you know smartly like shift our attention just the same way he does. Mm-hmm. Right. Because in that panic, he hears that there's an actual attack going on and, and no one really is believing it because they just witnessed this hoax, you know. And so he's run over and find that his, you know, there's someone else been killed and that his son has gone into shock. And he hauls ass over there, too. I mean, he like clearly, like, like we talked about before, has already we've seen that he's developed this like love for his children or he's displayed it. And he like hauls ass over there to save his son. His son's in shock and like left overnight in the hospital. And I mean, he knows at that point that something has to be done about this shark. Mm-hmm. It's clearly the same shark doing it and it hasn't been caught. It's not some fucking tiger shark. It's a great white. Mm-hmm. Well, at that point, I believe, you know, the mayor basically has to sign whatever they're doing. Right. And so what he asked him to sign is, you know, the contract essentially for Quint to go and hunt the thing for 10,000. You know, and so uh, that's mm-hmm. essentially when we get into our real second act out of two, you know, where they board the Orca, it's Quint, Brody and Hooper, and they set sail to go hunt this thing. And for me, like, this is where the movie sort of like takes a sharp turn, like thematically, right? It goes from less of a horror movie into a more of an adventure movie like we already talked about. But I mean, there's mm-hmm. lots and lots of good moments aboard the Orca. So uh, why don't we get started and talk about the Orca and these three people on the board? Yeah. So all all three of them, you know, I feel like um, Brody and Hooper already kind of have some camaraderie based on the little night adventure they went on, you know, and they're both on the same side trying to get the beaches closed and to hunt this, the real shark down. And meanwhile, Quint is kind of this outlier, you know, who's obviously a little crazy. Um, and they both have moments with, you know, uh, of, you know, kind of this antagonizing relationship a little bit on and off, both of them separately at different times. But through that, we get them to kind of bond, you know, we get those stories, including this, this masterclass, you know, monologue by uh, Robert Shaw, oh. um, 
you know, who's telling his story about, you know, surviving the USS Indianapolis where all the sailors had to just kind of float there in the ocean, getting picked off one by one by these sharks before rescue. That really is a masterclass in like monologue acting. You know, I was talking to my husband today about this movie and we were talking about the sharp contrast that the movie takes from act one to act two or three. And, you know, I was like, you know, we really have these less horrific moments until we have this one scene where Robert Jaw delivers this like terrifying deadpan, like into the camera monologue. And just like the way he tells that story is just masterful acting and is mm-hmm. terrifying. It's so easy just to get lost in the way he delivers all those lines. Fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, this is also when we get this cat and mouse game between the sharks and them. They harpoon it. You know, it takes the barrel with it underwater. They lose it Uh, when they're telling the stories, you know, that it just rams the side of the boat, you know, and they have to work on the engine all night to kind of fix it. Um, You know, they're just completely unprepared for how much this thing kind of antagonized them back after them trying to hunt it for all of their prowess and tools and, and experience. They're not really ready to go after this thing for all of its size and its uh, personality differences from other sharks that of course Quint has even come across. Mm-hmm. That shark is really good as it cues too. Right. So it's like, um, I hear you talking about sharks in this very like specific moment and here I am. <laughs> so. Yeah. And this is also kind of where Quint kind of breaks down psychologically a little bit. He is like, this is the ultimate shark. I'm going to get it. I don't want help. He smashes the radio, which is just psychotic. Yeah. He goes full on Jack Torrance. Yeah. He smashes the radio so that they can't, you know, call for help. And then he pushes the engine to essentially explosion during a, a chase scene, you know, trying to, to get jaws into shallower water so that they can be a little bit safer about that. And so they can get him without him dragging those things too far and under, and they can track him better. But he blows up the engine despite them warning him and the orca slowly begins to sink. And that sort of like starts the end of the movie at this point. I mean, like there's not a whole lot that they can do. They're really racing against time to save themselves, kill the shark or pick one, you know, either we're going to live and the shark's going to die or we're going to live and we'll have to come back out and do it again. (laughs) You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're basically like, okay, how are we going to do this thing? The, The boat is literally sinking. This thing is gigantic. It has the capability of ramming the boat, you know, of toying with us. You know, and so Hooper decides to get into his little shark, <laughs> his little shark tank or whatever, <laughs> little shark cage, uh, cage, yeah, and then uh, try and bait it with himself, and essentially try and you know inject it with the strychnine to poison it and kill it, uh, you know, up close and personal. But of course, as we find, it comes up behind him and scares him. He drops it and then rips apart the cage. He's able to get to safety somehow behind some rocks at the seabed. Meanwhile, they think he's dead and uh, getting out of the cage. Jaws essentially jumps onto the deck of the ship <laughs> and Robert Shaw uh, Quint is essentially eaten alive, killed by by Jaws. Um, you know, he, he'd said the night before that he will never wear a life jacket again, that he'd rather be eaten by the sharks than just standing there waiting for himself to die. You know, but, you know, with kind of a dark wish fulfilled in that moment. And he like literally slides down into the jaws of the shark and, you know, is eaten. Mm -hmm. Right. Do you remember the first time that you watched Jaws? Can you think back that far? No, I think I might have watched the last part first. It was like on TV and I just kind of caught the last bit. 
So whenever they come up with the plan that they're going to inject the shark with strychnine, did you even think you were, I mean, like, I remember watching this for the first time because I was, a, you know, a preteen and I was like, well, that's not going to work. I mean, like, <laughs> what a stupid plan. Oh, it just bothers me to this day. I'm like, please <laughs> find a better way. <laughs> Anyway, that's beside the point. Yeah. And so they, <laughs> you know, they do find a better way because apparently, you know, it's a more obvious way to stick one of those pressurized scuba tanks into its mouth, into its jaws, I guess, <laughs> and uh, climb up on the crow's nest and shoot it with a gun. <laughs> Honestly, that makes less sense. But at this point, we're so invested in the story that we're okay with it. And it just explodes spectacularly. You know, how stupid would it have been for them to finally get that thing injected and it just float to the top? <laughs> I know. We're like, did it. <laughs> Happy ending for all. Yeah. Hope the engine helps us make it back to shore. No. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But we have to have that kind of ending to this movie, at least as far as the shark is concerned. And we have to have a moment where we get to see the shark in its full glory, mm-hmm. right? Because we don't really get to see it that often in the movie, right? And I think like suspense and foreboding and insinuation only go so far. Eventually there has to be some sort of payoff in a film. Yeah. And this is the moment that we get that payoff. There's also that foreshadowing about the tanks when they're like moving around on the boat and he um Quint gets on to Brody about it and like what like, mind the tanks. And so clearly we know that they're dangerous. And I mean, I don't think it's all that far-fetched, but when you're grasping at straws and you have to kill a shark, you use what's around you, I guess, strychnine or a tank. Yeah. And, you know, you get, you made an interesting point earlier about the first kind of half of the movie being more of horror and this being more of an adventure. You know, the moments of horror that they do have are like that monologue. And I would say it shifts over to terror more as the shark attacks the cage, rips it apart, you know, and then jumps onto the thing. You know, so the definitely horror um, genre moments, you know, towards the end with it attacking the boat, playing the cat and mouse, attacking the cage, and then dump, jumping on the deck and eating someone and, <laughs> and everything else, you know. Um, so I would, I would push back a little bit and say that it's definitely a horror movie through and through, but you're right. It changes flavors of horror halfway through. Yeah, it becomes incredibly visceral toward the end right because i mean that's what we want you know we've had this entire movie of like sort of like skirting around the shark and we're ready for the shark to be there to be this clear and present danger that we can visually see Mm -hmm. and not just like sonically anticipate yeah and i i like that movie in the moment when the shark like sort of leaps onto the deck and eats quint (laughs) and people are like (laughs) like oh what the fuck i mean it's a big motherfucking shark yeah and I mean, I think it's also really effective because people don't really know anything about sharks. I mean, I would think that the modern person walking around today has gotten all of their information about great white sharks from Spielberg. You know, like we don't know anything about these creatures, <laughs> but I mean, it's incredibly effective on the the deck of that boat. I think that that reviewer who called it you know, like not scary or not real looking. I mean, he's right. It doesn't look that real but i mean what the fuck do i know i don't really know what a great white shark looks well, like. well at the point that so. that he's putting the the chum out when they first get on the orca and they're like they're chumming they're putting all that bloody guts you know into the water to kind of attract oh, when it. he's having his like verbal aside about quint or whatever. yeah and then the, the shark <laughs> pops its head out of the water with its jaws and then goes back down that is the big scare of the movie 
Yeah. Oh shit, my pants kind of scared. <laughs> yeah. And then that's when he backs up, you know, into the into the cabin, I guess, and says, you know, we're gonna need a bigger boat. You know, because he saw how how just how large this this shark is, and it was kind of our first face to face viewing of him, and it looked real, and it still looks good today. I would say the time where it, the only time it kind of breaks down for me with my twenty twenty eyes is when it goes into the cabin as he's you know has already eaten Quint, and he has to shove the thing into its mouth mm-hmm. because it's the longest he has to actually interact with it, and so we kind of see that it's it's not you know it doesn't have all of its articulate motion that it should have, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, no, I get that. I mean, but for 1975, that, I mean, that's pretty impressive and a big feat. It still holds up. Overall, yeah. it still holds up. So, but, you know, the the jaws, the jaws, the shark is destroyed. And, um. Bruce. <laughs> Bruce, I know. That's, that's, I was talking to my husband today and I was just like, yeah, you know, Bruce, the shark. <laughs> Hooper resurfaces, they have some back and forth, and then it's time to swim back to shore yeah. as the credits roll. Of course, he thought he was dead. You know, he thought Hooper was dead. And so it was nice to see that he had survived, uh, you know. So it was a little less. I, I feel like that's important. I feel like if Hooper had died and he had to swim back to shore alone, that it would have been more of a downer, you know. Uh, and I think that makes all the difference in the world with the ending here that Hooper survived and they both kind of swim back together. Well, and I also think, and I think this is a really good time to go into some of the characters in the cast, right? I think that um, Dreyfus's character and his acting, right, playing Hooper, is good. He's very likable. He's funny. He's like the comedic part of this movie. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to see him die. And I'm glad that he didn't. I think it also sort of sets up the idea that there could be a sequel, right? That these two have formed this bond over the course of this movie and they'll be in touch. And I mean, like, if it's not another great white and Amity, at least they can meet up again in the future and destroy another shark or something like that. It really sets up the possibility for just other films in the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he comes over with like three more bottles of wine and <laughs> whatever, yeah. you know? But I, I think his character is incredibly likable. In fact, I think he's probably my favorite character in the movie, right? I just, I, I love Hooper and I love the way that Dreyfus portrays him. I think that he's an incomparable actor. Well, he's a forceful voice of reason when, you know, Roy Schotter, due to his job in politics, can't be, in, you know, in a way. So he's kind of this outsider that can say, hey, open your goddamn eyes, you know? And uh, he really pushes back in all these moments, even though he's kind of the smallest guy on screen, you know? He's like the Dr. Fauci of Jaws. Is that- <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually, he is. Yeah. Um, you know, so, but this movie overall was excellently cast. You know, they tried to get relative unknowns at that time, you know, so it'd be easier for the audience to kind of come in with a clean slate. And we'll go into some of that other, you know, fun facts regarding some of this casting later. But, you know, I think Roy Scheider is uh, an excellent choice for, you know, Chief Brody. He just did an excellent job kind of working his way through the story and reacting to all of the things that he had to react to kind of in just this um, really kind of brilliant way where, you know, you'd want to, the knee jerk would be to like, well, I'm the police chief, you know, coming at everything with this, you know, super experienced bravado. And no, he can, he shows that he is confident, but also scared of certain things. And he does it in a way that, 
you know, isn't like emasculating or anything. He just, he plays a real person. And I think that's as much as in the writing as it is in the performance. I agree. I think that Roy Schotter brings an emotional depth to this performance. And like we talked about earlier, he definitely has a backstory that we're just not privy to, you know, he is a big city police officer coming from new york city right to amity afraid of water of and, all things. <laughs> yeah afraid of water and um and i mean like there's just a lot going on with his character and we don't have to know all the details but roy scheider sort of shows us in his performance exactly what's going on in his mind there's a scene in the movie where they're talking about their scars on the orca Mm -hmm. right and it's like uh shaw and dreyfus just back and forth look at this one and very quietly in the background roy shotter like lifts his shirt up and displays his own scar and doesn't say anything about it you know what i mean i think that's a, a very excellent moment for that particular character it's like he has he has experiences just like everybody else but he doesn't really need to talk about it or show it he's kind of shy to do so but he also wants to join in with the boys or whatever i don't know i mean i'm almost crying talking about it right now i like that particular moment in this movie well i took something different from that because i believe when he lifts his thing it's his appendix scar Oh, I mean, I took it as maybe he got shot or something in the line of duty. I mean, maybe I was just reading too much into the... He's like, oh, mine is only like this medical thing and I can't really like say anything. Maybe this is how my brain works. I was like, obviously something happened in New York to make him go to Amity and this is what it is. And we just don't get to hear that story because the fucking shark yeah, shows up. You could be right. You know? yeah. But yeah, I mean, like, this just this is the way that I read it. And I just, I really, like we talked about that scene, that studied scene with his son at the table. I think that Roy Scheider is is a great actor in, in many other movies that he's in. I still need to see Sorcerer. It came out the same year as Star Wars and theoretically is one of the most underrated like thrillers of all time. And I still haven't seen it. I mean, it's one of the few frequent movies that I haven't seen. So I also need to watch yeah. Sorcerer. But let's talk about Robert Shaw for a minute, shall we? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think Robert Shaw in this movie is just phenomenal. I always just like I'm on the edge of turning on subtitles whenever he's on screen. It's like, can't understand. <laughs> well, I mean, because he talks like the fucking sea captain from The Simpsons, you know, but that's what his character is supposed to be. He's supposed to be the Ahab of this movie yeah. and has to go hunt his whale. <laughs> that's right. And he's obsessed. Why are you so obsessed with that shark? <laughs> but. Mm-hmm. I mean, a man goes on a quest and a man has to finish his quest, right? And this is what this movie is. This is man versus nature and ultimately man versus himself. And I just, I love that about Robert Shaw. I think that he like captivates the movie when he's on screen. I think anytime that he's there, he's a presence in the film. I love his intro where he scratches the chalkboard. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's like one of the greatest introductions of character. And I just, I, I think if you're going to talk about the acting in this movie, and I know that Richard Dreyfuss was nominated for a BAFTA, I really think that Robert Shaw is the the thing that would have gotten an acting nomination in this movie. Frankly, I mean, I have to go back and look at 1975's like supporting actor nominations, but I don't understand why he wouldn't. I think for the time that he is on screen, he's just very impressive. Yeah, I would agree with that. Especially his monologue. Yeah, the monologue alone is like the greatest Oscar clip. I mean, like, just give the man a trophy for crying out loud. Shit. I mean, he deserved it just for that. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm so entranced 
watching that scene in this movie. And yeah, you know, I always like when I see like really good monologues, I do get entranced, right? I think about like Nicole Kidman in Eyes Wide Shut delivering those like two or three monologues that she has. And Robert Shaw is very similar when he does that. He just holds your attention and you're just like steadfastly staring at him and listening to the words and taking everything in in a way that only a very talented, gifted actor can do. Yeah. And there's some stories about that monologue and its performance that we'll get into a little bit later. Oh, that makes me super excited. (laughs) And we get some, uh, we get a lot of, you know, bit players and side characters in this movie. Of course, Brody and Hooper and Quint are our three main ones, but you know, we also get, you know, repeat side characters like Brody's wife, Ellen, played by Lorraine Gary and the mayor uh, you know, Mayor Larry Vaughn played by Murray Hamilton, who is uh, no stranger to the genre as he was in Amityville, I believe in a number of others. But um, I think both of them do excellently. She is such uh, a force when she's on screen. Yes, I completely agree. I think that she, in a movie that we don't have a lot of female characters in, I think that she's sort of like a breath of fresh air in this. Mm-hmm. And it really aids, you know, uh, Brody's character. And um, she doesn't seem to think that things are so like dangerous until she's holding that book that he's reading and she's screaming at her kids to get out of the I water. I love that moment. Yeah. It's so funny. She's like, why and are you being so strict with him? You're going to like give him nightmares about the water. We want him to be able to swim. And then she looks at the book <laughs> that he was looking at with the sharks, like getting people off of boats. And she's like, get out of the water. Let's father. <laughs> Michael, you heard your father. Get out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> she's good in this movie. I mean, and like they needed that like female presence this movie really is a sausage fest and they just like they needed to have that like that female perspective in there just a little bit i wanted to see more of her and actually her part in the book is much larger Hmm. than the movie Yeah, i know (laughs) so her and hooper have an interesting little thing going on they shall do yeah and then of course the the mayor he has the the you know unenviable job of being you know the dick of the film yeah he really is the movie's second villain he just reminds so. me of that character from um, Poltergeist, you know, who's like, doesn't matter where we put the graves, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. He just died, too. Here's also yeah. one Return of the Living Dead. Yeah. You moved the headstones, but left the graves. <laughs> Wait, I'm <laughs> yeah. quoting a different movie. I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't move the bodies. <laughs> Yeah, everyone, you know, anybody in a movie whose sole job is to, like, make sure that money is made, right? That should be a clear, like, notice that this person is probably a little bit of a villain in some way. Either just, like, intentionally or not. But, you know, money is the... we learned nothing from Jaws and Aliens and Avatar and all these other fucking movies. Please. Yeah. Money is not everything, okay? Sometimes money is the root of all evil. That's the reason why it's a fucking proverb. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <God>. <laughs> <sighs> so now that we've gone through the movie and its cast and characters, I know that this has a very storied production history and people talk about the making of Jaws a lot. In fact, there was an entire podcast series devoted to the making of Jaws a couple years ago. Yeah. It's like a wondery production. Hmm. It's a really good podcast, but I didn't finish it, but I mean, there's a lot of detail and I know that people talk about the production of this movie and I'm sure that, you know, we've got some things to say about it. Yeah. 
So Richard Zanuck and David Brown, producers at Universal Pictures, independently heard about Peter Benchley's novel Jaws. Brown came across it in the literature section of lifestyle magazine Cosmopolitan, then edited by his wife, Helen Brown. A small card written by the magazine's book editor gave a detailed description of the plot, concluding with the comment, might make a good movie. Hmm. The producers each read the book over the course of a single night and agreed the next morning that it was the most exciting thing that they had ever read and that they wanted to produce a film version, although they were unsure how it would be accomplished. They purchased the film rights in 1973 before the book's publication for approximately 175000 equivalent to about 990000 in 2018 yeah it's about a million bucks (laughs) brown claimed that had they read the book twice they would never have made the film because they would have realized how difficult it would be to execute certain sequences (laughs) i actually asked my dad um what you know his experience watching this movie was and he said he had read the book uh before and i said well the book only came out like a year before the movie and he said he'd read like some others at the time um mini book versions in like reader's digest Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would, had come out, and so I think he read that before, and uh, that made him want to to see the movie. Interestingly, see, so, yeah, I think Reader's Digest was sort of famous for like doing a really short version of novels, mm-hmm. right? And they would put them into their publication. It's like really quick, like toilet reads. You know what I mean? And so yeah, that's where my dad kept his Reader's Digest. I mean, it's a handy thing to have right next to the commode. <laughs> so. Oh, God, I can't even said that word. Only my dad commode. says the word commode. <laughs> <laughs> Toilet. I'm going to add Twilight. that to one of your words. <laughs> commode. Yeah, I don't... Ugh, ugh. But yeah, so this is what Reader's Digest was famous for, and I think a lot of people sort of like got the idea of what Jaws was from that. And I, because I, I, I don't know the facts really, but I'm not sure when it hit the bestsellers list. It was a number one bestseller, but I think a lot of that had to do with movie tie-ins. Yeah, exactly. And to direct the producers, Zanuck and Brown first considered veteran filmmaker John Sturges, whose resume included another maritime adventure, The Old Man in the Sea, before offering the job to Dick Richards, whose directorial debut, The Culpepper Cattle Company, had come out the previous year. However, they grew irritated by Richard's habit of describing the shark as a whale and soon dropped him from the project. (laughs) Okay. So the old man in the sea is a boring book and I assume a boring movie. I know that there's lots of like struggles. I talk a lot about like plot lines and things like that. And that really is like a man versus nature, man versus himself kind of story, Mm -hmm. but incredibly boring. I have never in my life heard the title, the Culpepper cattle company. (laughs) So I don't know. That he was the right choice for this movie anyway. Well, come to find out, obviously, Steven Spielberg very much wanted the job. And he was 26 years old at that point. And he had uh, just directed his first theatrical film, The Sugarland Express, for Zanuck and Brown. And at the end of the meeting in their office, after showing it to them, uh, he noticed a copy or their copy of the still unpublished Benchley novel. And after reading it, he was immediately captivated. He later observed that it was similar to his 1971 television film, Duel, and that both deal with you know, the, these leviathans targeting everyman. He also revealed in the Making of Jaws documentary on the 2012 DVD release that he directly referenced Duel by repurposing the sound of the truck being destroyed as the death roar of the shark. After Richard's departure, the producers signed Spielberg to direct in June of 1973, even before the release of Sugarland Express. I also heard somewhere that he wanted to incorporate that old couple from Sugarland Express somewhere in the movie. Is that like <laughs> real? I. 
I, I haven't heard that. So, I mean, that scene in the Sugarland Express where they're standing outside the cop car, like talking about what had happened. The cop like drives off and leaves him on the side of the road. Yeah. I like it. So like you said earlier, the story from the book was substantially changed, especially in the first two acts, removing subplots that Spielberg thought were like superfluous or even damaging to the characters and their camaraderie for the final act, such as an adulterous affair between Brody's wife and Richard Dreyfuss's character, Hooper. Yeah, the book is incredibly different. (laughs) And I mean, I... There are some times that I will say that I enjoy a movie just as much as the book for different reasons, Mm -hmm. right? And I've only read Jaws one time when I was very young, Mm -hmm. but I I find that I'm captivated by characters a lot, especially in novels, obviously. And um, it was just like a, a much richer environment, you know, and I, I think that in this particular movie, yeah, they kind of are superfluous. If you're going to get to the to like the crux of everything, it's about the shark and about killing the shark. Mm-hmm. And that's what it should completely only be about. Yeah. Other changes included Brody's fear of water to make him more sympathetic to the audience. And various amounts of humor and levity were added throughout the script, including, of course, in Hooper's character. Um, Mm -hmm. The question of who deserves the most credit for writing Quint's monologue about the Indianapolis has caused substantial controversy. Spielberg described it as a collaboration between Sackler, Milius, and actor Robert Shaw, who was also a playwright, which I didn't know. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. And of course, uh, Sackler says it was a collaboration between him and Shaw and downplayed Milius's role. But whatever, we ended up getting that, you know that wonderful monologue. So I know there are several different versions of the script, right? Didn't Spielberg himself write one? Uh, no, I think that the actual original author wrote three different versions that kind of, you know, worked into worked in Spielberg's concerns about it. Um, uh-huh. And he basically, as he handed off that last version, he was just like, here you go. I've, re- I've removed all of myself from this and that's as best oh. as I can do, you know? And, um, they did they did put him in the movie as like an interviewer you know mm-hmm. uh, he's also known as an actor and a children's book author um but you know the i don't know if this is an old wives tale and i didn't include it in the fun facts but apparently he had to be like thrown off the set because they he, they had changed the ending to you know uh put the thing in his mouth and blow it up and he said it would be unrealistic and it, he wouldn't be tied to that with his you know original novel and and he had to be thrown off set i don't know that that actually happened um, that seems like hearsay, especially since they had gone through multiple writers and screen, you know, and screenplay people like before that to the point where he was on set playing an interviewer, you know, <laughs> things like that. So I think that if he had a problem, he would have had it earlier than that and he wouldn't have shown up. Yeah. So Benchley also wrote, you know, other novels that became sort of like aquatic horror movies like The Deep, you know, and he, uh, I know that he he really appreciates like ocean and ocean life. Mm-hmm. I think I read somewhere that he would have never wrote the novel Jaws if he thought that people would go out and hunt sharks afterward yeah. and stuff like that. So I've the only other Benchley novel I've read is The Deep. Yeah. And it's also a good movie with Jacqueline Bisset. Yeah. So the movie was filmed on location, of course, at Amity Island, which is not Amity Island. There is no such thing. It is Martha's Vineyard, right? Uh, and of course, all most of the extras, if not all of them were locals to, to Martha's Vineyard. And of course, after this movie, uh, you know, they were used to like 5,000 people, you know, coming in. Uh, but after this movie came out, it was 15,000. So it tripled. 
<laughs> people have figured it out. Well, it looks beautiful. So I mean, but of course, the Martha Vineyards was chosen because of the surrounding ocean. You know, had a sandy bottom that had never dropped below thirty-five feet for about twelve miles out from the shore, which allowed the mechanical sharks, you know, to operate while also you know beyond sight of land. And there are some times, you know, toward the end of the movie where you can sort of like see land in the distance, right? Mm-hmm. When they're trying to get the boat in there as fast as they can, which ultimately leads to the engine being destroyed, and you could just see land in the periphery right and you're like oh they're almost there mm-hmm. you know but just still far enough away to be like oh fuck but close enough so, for the end of them just to, to kind of swim to shore on those barrels right it makes it all very believable now i thought still it's like i knew the martha's vineyard thing i know that's all in cape cod right it's kind of south it's kind of its own thing right versus i went up on my my recent vacation to cape cod to go to provincetown which is kind of like north cape cod versus the very tip of it versus martha's vineyard is kind of its own little like island thing and mm-hmm. um I was like, I was just assuming like, there's no sharks up there. You know, this is all just Jaws and that's just where they shot it to make it look like it was like this beach town. But no, I went to the beach and there was two gigantic signs warning of great white sharks. (laughs) (laughs) Showing significant injury or death and like, in like showing like actual, like I need to like read the, I took pictures of both of them and I I think I sent one of them to you. Yeah, you sent me one. (laughs) So listeners... Wait for check our Instagram this week and you will see the picture that he's talking about. This sign that's right there on the beach. And of course, really literally right before we went, we watched Jaws. <laughs> that's when we watched the movie. So uh, Yeah, it's uh that's a perfect time to watch Jaws right before you go to the actual place that it was filmed and you see that sign of a great white shark. I was I think I wrote back to you, I was like, Well, that's terrifying. <laughs> right. So I didn't really get in the water much. <laughs> and someone recently was bit by a great white shark. Like like last week, I was listening to the news on the radio and somebody up in Maine got bit by a great white. And so they're now telling people, like, be careful when you go to the beach, especially in this area, because there's a, a great white shark. I mean, so like, obviously, some of the things that this movie is about are real. I mean, these sharks will get into a, an area of water where they're trying to hunt and feed, and they're not going to go away. I just and never they imagined they'd be that far north. Like, I I don't know anything about this. I just always assumed they'd be in slightly warmer waters, you know, much less up into Maine. Yeah. So, I mean, apparently it's a, it's a thing. I know when me and Rob were on vacation in Miami, uh, they had to get everybody out of the ocean. We were at the beach because there was a shark. We had to wait for a good 20 (laughs) minutes until the shark swam away. And I don't think it was a great white, but I mean... I was scared. I was like, I ain't getting that fucking water. <laughs> like, you already have seen this movie. You already had a fish attack. And it was That's a tiny fish. Right. <laughs> I am not about to be bitten in my, you know, sensitive areas ever again. <laughs> but that is an anecdote for another time. <laughs> That's right. We'll save that one. Did you say that there was like a true crime connection to this movie at this location or? Yeah. So in 1974, like one of Massachusetts, like most famous unsolved crimes, or I mean, maybe famous for the entire nation, this woman's body was found in Provincetown, uh, sort of when filming was wrapping up on Jaws. And, um, oh, interesting. It's pretty horrific. Like her head was almost decapitated by a shovel. And her hands were missing and a lot of her teeth were missing. So they, they don't know who this woman is. There's just no way to like identify her. But they did release a composite drawing of the woman. And for, you know, decades, people just have always wondered like who the lady of the dunes is. And, you know, obviously she met a ill fate. But a couple of years ago, like 2018, the dunes, oh my Joe God, Hill, that's literally where I was like sitting on the beach. 
in Provincetown. Provincetown. Yeah. I mean, this is where she was. Her body was found. Joe Hill, Stephen King's son slash protege, uh, was watching Jaws because he was listening to that podcast that we had already talked about. And he was like, I'm going to rewatch Jaws. And there's a scene in the movie where all the extras are getting off that ferry and coming into Amity for the 4th of July celebrations. And for a split second, a woman turns around. She's wearing this blue scarf on her head. And Joe Hill like pauses the movie and he's like, it looks exactly like the composite drawing of the Lady of the Dunes. Oh, my God. And I know that a lot of locals were extras in this movie mm-hmm. because, you know, Martha's Vineyard famously wouldn't let people come and film. It's like one of the first times this happened. And so people were curious they got cast in the movie and so it's quite possible that this woman who was like brutally murdered is featured in jaws as an extra in this split second moment and i have gone back and like looked at the composite drawing and the screenshot and all that stuff and it does look incredibly similar if she was on martha's vineyard and killed there i can't imagine her body would have shown up ashore in provincetown it's just a no no she was killed in provincetown okay like she like I, i think that either she was murdered right there on the beach or she was murdered and taken to the beach but it was not in a washed ashore kind of way it was left there because it was also kind of posed so but yeah it's just like a really creepy yet fascinating like part of the history of the making of this movie and i mean like hopefully at some point people can sort of like i assume they keep written records of who is in film even extras and i mean there's got to be a way to figure out who this woman is but i remember joe hill like posting about this on social media when he first like thought about it and i know it's been covered in like people magazine and usa today and stuff like that so i mean it's just like it's really fascinating to me. Uh, there is some speculation that maybe like Whitey Bulger killed her, what? right? Yeah, I don't. That seems unreasonable to me. I don't. Doesn't seem like something he would do. Has anyone but, followed up on that? As far as like that extra and um, I, I think. I mean, like I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe some people thought that he was just like you know grasping at straws or whatever. He was mistaken. I can see a resemblance, but I'm sure that people are following up on it. They're just not talking about it as much as they were in 2018, mm-hmm. you know? Okay. So, so let's talk about the filming a little bit. Yeah, I think we need to, because like, I mean, like we talked about in certain scenes, I think that Spielberg was very crafty and just created some new uh, ways of filming in this movie. Yeah. So a new camera rig was created to ensure, you know, camera stability underwater and on the water surface. So the camera wouldn't like bob up and down too much. And for also for clarity for underwater scenes. So I never really thought about this, you know, as Jaws being kind of groundbreaking and in, in like a technical aspect for like ocean photography. I, I can't imagine that it was like the first ocean set film. I guess not, but other people use tanks and stuff and, yep. you know, sleight of hand and backdrops and things like that. And I just never thought of it that way until I was doing the research for this film. But apparently that's the case is that, you know, this is the really the first one to be shot principally on the water, on the ocean, the actual ocean instead of a tank on Hollywood, you know, back lot or something. And that has to be a pretty masterful, like, invention because can you imagine trying to watch a movie where the camera is like like bobbing all the time Mm -hmm. making people sick it's like watching Blair Witch or something (laughs) like that and and you had to find a way to make these shots stable and I think that's pretty masterful yeah and uh, apparently Spielberg asked the art department to avoid red in both the scenery and wardrobe so that the blood from the attacks would be the only red element and cause you know like a bigger shock from that kind of like the sunshine thing where like no one was you know there were no warm colors in the ship 
But as soon as mm-hmm. they go outside, everything is just like brightly lit to kind of create a shock. Um, but, you know, after watching this, I, I'd say that, you know, it's it's an oft-repeated fact, but it's not super effective because a lot of the extras are wearing like red hats or clothing and they're like Coca-Cola bottles, American flags. I think even like the, the boat of the Orca has like a red like rim on the bottom of it. So I'm not sure how true that is, um, you know, upon watching it more closely, but you know, the blood is certainly significant in the film, but I I wouldn't say it's um, more or less shocking because of its color. Yeah. I wouldn't call it shocking at all. Actually. I, I mean, maybe because I watch a lot of horror movies in general and I, I see blood more often than I think most moviegoers do, but, um, I, I don't find it that shocking in jaws. And I know that we're going to talk about like it's gruesome qualities and things, but I, I mean, for a movie made in the seventies, I, I think it's not any more violent than other films that were made around the well, time. Well, I don't know because I, I think like I see those like those limbs and the bucket of you know giblets left behind from these uh, these attacks, and I'm like, oh, they really showed some sit, you know, and they like the first daylight attack that you see is this kid getting murdered, and you see all his blood. You don't see a body or anything like that, but you do see some detached, you know limbs with their their you know chewed off meat and i was like holy crap how is this a pg movie back in 1975 you know today that would be r and i was thinking that on this latest rewatch too i thought you know if they were making this movie today it certainly wouldn't be pg but i don't think it would be r either i think a lot of the violence is implied which makes it scarier i think if you show a lot then it's just not it's not as effective and i think that the later jaws movies i think it would be sort of lose that it should be r or pg-13 um you know but of course back then i'm not sure pg-13 existed Mm -mm. but it wasn't until the 80s as far as jaws himself uh initially the film's producers wanted to train a great white shark I don't think their brains are big enough for that. <laughs> but quickly realized that wasn't really possible. So three full-size, pneumatically powered prop sharks, which the film crew nicknamed Bruce after Stu- after Spielberg's lawyer, <laughs> Bruce Reimer, were made for the production. A sea sled shark, which was like a full body prop with its belly missing that was towed with a 300-foot line. And two platform sharks, one that moved from camera left to right with its hidden left side exposing an array of pneumatic hoses and an opposite model with its right flank uncovered. Their construction involved a team of as many as 40 effects technicians supervised by mechanical effects supervisor Bob Maddie, best known for creating the giant squid in 2000 leagues, 20,000 leagues under the sea. And of course, it took about 13 people to operate each of those um, each of those props for Bruce. Bruce. (laughs) <laughs> i mean so how do you feel about the way the shark looks in this movie i know we already talked about that it yeah sort of maybe holds up a little yeah but for as little as they show it does you know but that's yeah. what spielberg found was that they look so bad you know that they created kind of an uncanny valley because it's just you know the sharks are supposed to have dead eyes a doll's eyes but they're not supposed <laughs> to you know look literally like fake you know so (laughs) (laughs) you know so i think he did as best he could and he realized you know i think there was a moment in the dailies and and editing that he was like oh shit i have to make a shark movie where i can't show the shark because it looks like shit you know but and it it fucking worked you know and (laughs) it it heightened the and it and because of that filmmaking aspect of it's it's scarier from what you don't see you know uh I think it influenced a lot of movies after that, like Alien. Yeah. You know, 
As we mentioned, Jaws was the first motion picture to be shot on location on the ocean. The problems associated with that and problems like, of course, the the pesky sharp props that we just mentioned caused massive delays and ultimately caused the film to go far over budget. The initial budget was 3.5 to 4 million, and it ended up costing 9 million. That is way (laughs) over budget. It's more than double. And this is like his like second Movie, yeah. major motion and his picture. First one hadn't even theatrically released yet. Right. I mean, like, what kind of fucking reputation yeah. is he getting? So it was said that a twelve-hour daily schedule it would only result in four hours or less of actual filming being done. Jesus. Because of the extensive shot setups, shark prop rig problems, electrical problems, sailboats floating into frame, you know, <laughs> all would cause significant delays. I wonder how many times Robert Shaw just like walked away and he was like dick you know or whatever god it's been like long ass days yeah so although principal photography was scheduled to take 55 days it didn't wrap until after 159 days (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) so spielberg reflecting on the protracted shoot stated i thought my career as a filmmaker was over i heard rumors that I would never work again because no one had ever taken a film a hundred days over schedule. Look at him breaking records all over the place. <laughs> and he later said, you know, I could have shot the movie in a tank or even in, you know, protected lakes somewhere, but it would not have looked the same. He said, and as for a lack of experience, he said, uh, I was naive about the ocean. Basically I was pretty naive about mother nature and the hubris of a filmmaker who thinks he can conquer the elements was foolhardy, but I was too young to know I was being foolhardy when I demanded that we shoot the film in the Atlantic ocean and not in a North Hollywood tank. <laughs> I mean, and history will go on to show that Steven Spielberg is probably one of the most recognizable directors, if not like favorite directors of an entire generation of people. And still, like new generations are discovering his movies. And so, like, it's okay. Like, you can like tame that hubris and go do what you want to do to make the movie you want to make. Because ultimately, like we talked about with its release, this movie has made a gobbledygillion dollars and Mm -hmm. is well-respected and remembered and will be remembered throughout the history of time. Yeah. But, you know, those delays proved beneficial in some ways, right? So the, the script was refined during production multiple times and the unreliable mechanical sharks forced Spielberg to shoot many of those scenes. So the shark was only hinted at. You know, for example, much of the shark hunt its locate and its location, it, it, it was only indicated by the floating yellow barrels. Right. And I know that the uh, the screenwriter, Carl Gottlieb, was in the movie, too. I think he plays like the journalist, right? He writes for the local paper. And I think that he had sort of written himself a much larger part and he kept like having to cut it down and cut it down and cut it down <laughs> until he's like barely in the movie himself. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he probably deserved that screenwriting credit for sure. So after seeing the film, the studio decided to under, undergo an unprecedented $700,000 advertising campaign for the film, eventually reaching another $1.5 million by some reports. It worked, and Jaws was the first film to reach over $100 million at the box office despite the summer release when it was assumed that most Americans would want to spend their time outdoors and didn't want to go to a big film release. But beachgoers especially flocked to the cinemas to see this. You know, so it's very interesting because at this point, if the studio didn't like what they saw or they were still so angry with Spielberg that they decided to just release it, no marketing or anything, Spielberg's career could have been over and this could be a cult classic today, you know, and not the first blockbuster. 
and he would be someone that's not a household name. It might be very interesting to see what film today would look like if that decision had not been made. I agree. And I, I think it's, we, we talked about this being like the prototypical summer blockbuster mm-hmm. and it really is. And it also started a whole line of like movie tie-ins that I think George Lucas would later go on to like really be successful at, yep. right? Like he knew what he should do based upon Jaws because like we said, Jaws was a, a slot machine, a pinball machine, video games, but there were also shot glasses, beach towels, whatever they can throw Jaws on, they did. Yeah. And people in droves went and bought these things like this was a cultural phenomenon well and i think he really got his head into jaws and you know in multiple ways as we'll get to but you know that's part of his thing for star wars is like i'm not going to make any money but i'm going to get all licensing to all toys apparel anything that has to do with star wars i get 100 percent. and they're like whatever okay and now he's a fucking billionaire <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, and this this is just how you make money today as a director. <laughs> or I mean, like if you're gonna make a blockbuster like this, make sure that you have your licensing deals like on point. Otherwise you're going to lose so much money. But I mean, like you were saying, this movie could have been a cult classic instead of a well-regarded film. And I think a lot of this has to do with like the marketing and the tie-ins and everything that came with it. Like it really captured like worldwide film goers attention mm-hmm. and people just sort of like ate it up and they could not get enough of Jaws. And then summertime became the time for like big ticket movies to come mm-hmm. out and everyone learned like it's more than just a movie. You could also put something in a happy meal or whatever, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So. It's become uh, you know, corporate shills and, capitalist decors it's america (laughs) hey i wanted those happy meals (laughs) (laughs) so i don't think a lot of the success would have happened without the music from john williams right most of the iconicness of it all which of course earned him that academy award and was you know he was later ranked for that sixth greatest score for american film institute and of course the uh the main shark theme is a simple alternating pattern of two notes variously identified as E and F or F and F sharp became a classic piece of suspense music synonymous with approaching danger and any I feel like you could just go step outside into the street or anywhere probably almost everywhere in the world and just go Donna Donna and they know exactly just two notes and they know exactly what you're doing yep I think that John Williams did a very like Bernard Herrmann thing with this, mm-hmm. right? And so like you go outside and just say like yeah 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 and people know it's psycho and it's just like the alternating of these two notes to create this like really huge sense of dread and people just walk away remembering that and always will. It's synonymous with the movie. Yeah. Williams described the theme as grinding away at you, just as a shark would do. Instinctual, relentless, unstoppable. Wow. Many have attributed the primal aspects of the theme to the shark's heartbeat, or perhaps rapid respiration associated with danger. Yeah, I'm reading too much into it. <laughs> the theme also trained the audience to expect an attack, so when the theme wasn't used and Jaws appeared suddenly, it was that much more shocking. And that that I do believe, because you don't hear that impending theme when he's, like, putting out the chum, 
you know you don't hear no. it you know a lot of that time it's it's really setting up that suspense in the first half of the movie i think is when this theme is really working at it it's hardest to to kind of scare you and announce the presence of jaws and that's really funny that it does that in that particular way because when that woman is skinny dipping in the water right we don't think that anything's going to happen it seems very safe but now even and then you start to hear some music playing and i don't think that's really even like the main shark's theme at that point is it uh i'd have to go back and watch it honestly i wasn't doing a, a watch just for the music but i think you i think especially later on when they're at the beach mm-hmm. you know you start hearing the but i think the the movie itself opens with the theme whenever he's throwing that chum into the water that's when you expect to see a shark right you don't expect to see the shark when a woman has like flung out her clothes off and jumped into the ocean so i th- th- they need the music at these particular moments especially if you're not going to show the shark mm-hmm. we have to have a presence and the presence in this movie is the score oh definitely and uh, Spielberg later said that without Williams' score, the film would have been only half as successful. And according to Williams, it jump-started his career, which of course it did. You know, and it's more nuanced than I remember. Like I'm, I listened to the whole score several times for this recording, and I hear Superman in there. I hear Star Wars in there. Uh, some of those just like uh, cues that would later become you know entire scores. And I hear some influence for others. I hear Terminator and I hear Aliens in there. Um, there's some almost entire, almost the entire theme of Terminators is in one of the tracks for Jaws and some of the uh, percussion, the beating of, uh, it sounds almost like beating of fucking pots and pans or something is in Aliens. And I'm kind of thinking that, you know, this is a lot more, you know, influential than, than I first remember because I, you know, when you think of Jaws score, you just think of those two notes, but there's a lot more there especially if you look at the whole score and there's just uh there was a lot of gold for other uh you know composers to mine there i think over the years i think i need to go and listen to it just i i don't think i've ever listened to the score of jaws aside from the the donna donna sharks theme right and i i would like to hear what it sounds like separate from the movie because john williams is no joke i mean he's he's a by far the most famous film composer i think of all time he's the second most nominated person in the academy history behind like walt disney Mm -hmm. and i mean like he really is like the heart and soul behind many many movies Uh he's created like you know a sense of awe and a sense of terror and a sense of wonder all at the same time and that's really hard to do i think with take star wars music away or indiana jones music away and you've you've got you know some sort of soulless thing compared to what it was with the music you know i mean and that's that's true so i mean i think that i think that film score today and the way that people appreciate it really owe john williams a debt of gratitude and i think that he's right i think that jaws probably really did like jumpstart his career i'm sure he had many things before this but i mean like when you have an iconic score like that with something that people can recreate quickly to describe an entire movie i mean that really says something about your work well yeah and even among his own scores this is iconic and it's just one of the most if not the most iconic score as far as like identifiability instant identifiability uh ever made i can't i don't i can't fathom why this isn't number one on that afi list you know it's six really (laughs) but he's also number one for star wars on that list yeah i'm (laughs) sure he's there several times in the top 10 he he is he and bernard herman are both in there a lot 
So let's talk. Uh, let's have some final thoughts on this. Uh, the legacy of this film. We keep we keep going kind of back to that through the score and obviously the marketing that that created this huge blockbuster and the fact that it was the first blockbuster, the first film shot on the ocean. Um, you know, it started that trend of the big high concept action oriented summer releases. Um, which, you know, formed a lot of our childhoods who were born in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Well, and I think that, like, Spielberg really took that idea of a summer blockbuster and ran with it because it seems like the uh, the big chunk of his career, at least what he, like, can do to make money for studios in order to make his more quiet movies. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what he does. And so he gives us Jaws. He gives us Close Encounters. He gives us Jurassic Park. E.T., etc. And then he gets to turn around and make things like The Color Purple and Schindler's mm-hmm. List. And, I mean, so he he's a very gifted director. You know, here lately I've been talking about trying to pick a director to watch their entire oeuvre. And I've been jumping back and forth between different people. But I think that Spielberg is probably the one to, like, watch and study. Because this is what it means to be a director in Hollywood. Like, you, you understand what it is to make a blockbuster and how to make them. And I'm sure that he's learned a lot of lessons from Joss. And he can make them much more effectively now. Yeah. But, I mean, this man is no stranger to the Oscar. He's no stranger to big box offices. And even his smaller, quieter movies like Color Purple and Schindler's List make a lot of money. What I would do is I'd also add in the movies that he produced that he did not direct, especially during his heyday in the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, like Back to the Future or Goonies. Mm-hmm. You know, those would be included in that list. And I think that would be uh, fun to see because obviously he is a very hands-on producer, sometimes <laughs> yes. extremely hands-on, like Poltergeist. <laughs> or even Goonies, I would dare say. I mean, like, you can't watch Goonies and not get a Spielbergian sense mm-hmm. when you are experiencing that film. It's it's very Steven Spielberg. And I, I think that he has influenced countless amounts of directors that came after him. But yeah, this man is smart. He knows how to make a movie. And... Um, <clears throat> I mean, I love Duel, you know? So, I mean, I, Steven Spielberg, to me, is... He's good. I've never he's seen great. that. I've never seen Sugarland Express. Duel's very good. I know you would like Duel a lot. It's a, it's a tense fucking movie. Like, edge of your seat, like, gripping your hands into fists kind of tense. Okay. Looking forward to it. So, just like... Um, you know, Orson Welles reading of like War of the Worlds, you know, legacy where people are, you know, there's there's a lot of talk about people having going to kill themselves or call 911 or like people going to watch um, Psycho and not being able to take a shower for years. You know, there's a lot of talk and, you know, urban legend around people not being able to go into the ocean after watching Jaws that, you know, uh, what Spielberg did to the waters, the same thing that Hitchcock did to, you know, the shower. Mm hmm. Or for birds. (laughs) Yeah. Or for like many things, really. I mean, like Hitchcock really did incite a sense of fear in his filmmaking. There's a thing called cinematic neurosis. And they don't really call it that anymore. But you think about like people saying that violent video games can affect the way that children grow up or who they become as adults, right? But this is something a little different. This is like a movie sort of like inciting a mental health disturbance or like um, increasing one that's already there. And so Jaws is number one on the list of this, that and The Exorcist, right, from the 70s. There's one case where a 17-year-old went to go see Jaws in its theatrical release, 
And she started having some sleep problems and some anxiety afterward. And then just several days after those problems started, she started screaming sharks randomly and would go into convulsions or seizures or something like that. And a lot of people associated her watching the movie with that. When I think clearly she probably had some sort of mental health issue to begin with. A lot of people talk about The Exorcist and how like it affected them in, in certain ways. Yeah, we hear stories about these in the, in the 70s, especially in the 70s, right? Where they yeah. were just coming out with this cutting edge, horrific stuff that would shock audiences. And we see that with Psycho in the 60s. Well, we see that in uh, Jaws. And we definitely saw that in Alien with those stories about people passing out or you know things like that. We don't really hear that anymore. Really, we heard people getting dizzy and stuff in Blair Witch, but that's different, right? That's that's like a visceral reaction to actually something trying to make you dizzy versus uh, we don't really hear someone was so shocked or dismayed or had to go outside and throw up with movies anymore because we're all so desensitized to all these things. I think the last time that I heard about someone doing that was when they showed an early clip of the new Suspiria to critics. And some people were like, oh my God, it's so gross or whatever, you know? But I think like... We started to learn that movies can have certain stressors in them. And I know there was a study done in the 80s where they talked about like stressor factors in movies. And they determined that movies that are more violent or more shocking will have more stressors in them. And I'm like, duh, did you have to have a whole fucking (laughs) study for this? And I think it's true that like the more horror movies you watch, you sort of like get sort of desensitized to what you see on screen and you expect it if not want it in the movies that you watch. But for like the normal layperson who's not a big horror fan, who's like, here's that Jaws is like the number one movie and you have to go see it via word of mouth. And they're not used to watching a movie like that. I can see how it can sort of affect them later mm-hmm. on. I mean, I, I don't know anything about sharks, but watching Jaws and then hearing a news report about a shark biting somebody. I mean, I might think fucking twice before I get into the ocean. You know? Well, yeah. And I've heard many people say that they'll never get into the ocean either because of Jaws or other things. But there's because they're afraid they don't know. They can't see what's there. They can't see under the surface. They don't know what's there. And that creates anxiety for them. You know, and I f- think that that anxiety existed before Jaws came out, but I think it capitalized on that and certainly didn't help those people that were already going to be afraid of that sort of thing. <laughs> Right. But I mean, if you're already afraid of the water and you hear that it's a movie about a shark, don't go see it. I mean, but also maybe it could help you, though. I mean, oftentimes there's some catharsis in film viewing Mm -hmm. sometimes. So, I mean, it could help all these things. But I really like that idea of cinematic neurosis. And I wish that it was studied a little bit more instead of just blamed for things. I think there's a little bit more below the surface when, as far as that is concerned. So let's talk about the influences. And I would just say, just as a quick discussion, basically everything else with sharks or man eating sea creatures since 1975 (laughs) has been influenced. (laughs) Uh, You know, I could rattle off, you know, obviously, you know, Sharknado and, you know, Mm-hmm. Deep Blue Sea and just a shit ton of others, you know. The Meg, Leviathan, The Deep, yeah. everything that came after this. As yeah. well as other films that don't necessarily take place in the ocean or in our water, like Alien, which was actually pitched to studios, like we said in the earlier episode, as Jaws in Space. And that's essentially what Alien is, right? We don't get to see the actual antagonist for much of the movie, but it's a very present danger and threat to the characters there, and they're trying to like find a way out of it. And 
And uh, even Spielberg said, uh, the next film that we're going to deep dive, Jurassic Park, he said, basically what I tried to do was create a really effective sequel to Jaws. And he did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. With much bigger Jaws. (laughs) So with that being said about the influences, I know that we have skirted around so many things in this discussion about fun facts. And I know that you have probably a shit ton. So why don't you lay them on me now? Okay. So the role of Brody was offered to Robert Duvall, but the actor was interested only in portraying Quint. I can see that. Yeah. But that was already cast. You know, they had the perfect person for that with Robert Shaw, Charlton Heston expressed a desire for the role, but Spielberg felt that Heston would bring a screen persona too grand for the part of a police chief of a modest community. Roy Scheider became interested in the project after he overhearing Spielberg at a party talk with the screenwriter about having a shark jump onto a boat. <laughs> really? <Yeah. laughs> That's how he got signed and There's on. a few other anecdotes, like Charlton Heston would ne- said that he would never work with Spielberg again because he thought he had had the part and it was basically taken away because of his persona or something you know and i like charlton heston i think he's a great screen presence but you know what spielberg's right he wanted unknowns and charlton heston would have been like okay the whole audience is gonna be like okay well charlton heston's gonna win the day that's just what he does you know yeah i don't he's not right for that part i mean i i also like heston as an actor i i think personal stuff aside i think he's a good actor but he's not right for the part of Brody. That's I mean, for damn either, sure. Either he's going to win the day or he's going to end up like falling to his knees on a beach, you know? <laughs> Damn you, sharks! <laughs> you did it! Oh no, he would blow up the shark, really. <laughs> and then fall to his knees like, you did it! You blew it up! <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Okay. That's, yeah. Roy Scheider, clearly... Is the Let only person my Hooper part. go. <laughs> Speaking of, for the role of Hooper, Spielberg initially wanted John Vaught. Really? Yeah. Timothy Bottoms, Joel Gray, and Jeff Bridges were also considered for the part. Joel Gray? What? <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? The no. MC from Cabaret? <laughs> I could kind of see Jeff Bridges. A nerded yeah. up Jeff Bridges. I mean, like, Jeff Bridges was super hot, like, back in the 70s and early 80s. So, yeah, I would have loved to have seen that anyway. But Joel Gray? Really? (laughs) That's bizarre to me. But Spielberg's friend George Lucas, an unknown director, suggested Richard Dreyfuss, whom he had directed in American Graffiti. Because the film Spielberg envisioned was so dissimilar to Benchley's novel, he asked Dreyfuss not to read it. And as a result of the casting, Hooper was rewritten to better suit Dreyfuss, as well as to be more representative of Spielberg, who came to view Dreyfuss as his alter ego in the film. And um, Dreyfuss is also in Close Encounters, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Spielberg himself was not present for the shooting of the final scene in which the shark explodes as he believed that the crew was planning to throw him in the water when the scene was done. It has since become tradition for Spielberg to be absent when the final scene of one of his films is being shot. Really? Hmm. That seems a little foolhardy for a director. Two scenes were altered following test screenings. As the audience's screams had covered up Scheider's bigger boat one-liner, Brody's reaction after the shark jumps behind him was extended, and the volume of the line was raised. Spielberg also decided that he was greedy for one more scream, and reshot the scene in which Hooper discovers Ben Gardner's body using (laughs) 3,000 of his own money after Universal refused to pay for the reshoot. Of course course they they did. did. (laughs) (laughs) 
We've paid six million more than your three million dollars. <laughs> We're not paying you an extra three thousand. The underwater scene was actually shot in Field's swimming pool in Encino, California, using a life cast latex model of Craig Kinsberg's head attached to a fake body, which was placed in the wrecked boat's hole. To simulate the murky waters of Martha's Vineyard, powdered milk was poured into the pool, which was then covered with a turban. <laughs> Well, it worked. Yeah. I mean, it's a scary fucking part of that movie. I swear to God. Like every time I forget, I forget that it's there and I just like shriek out loud, usually to myself. <laughs> so before that, the biggest scream in the movie was when, you know, Bruce brings up his head out of the water, you know, as they're throwing chum out and that's the bigger boat scene. Right. But he didn't, he wanted another scream. And so that's why he created that. But in, you know, the film had to go off the gate at that point and go to all these theaters. And so when he saw it at that point, the, the scream for, you know, the shark jaws head coming out of the water was about half as powerful because he found that the audiences didn't trust him anymore. Right. They didn't Mm. trust the film, you know, uh, to not scare them. So about half the audience was kind of expecting something to happen. Yeah. I still jump on both on both cases. But every time. Yeah. But uh he he said he learned from that to only put one big scare in a movie, or at least try to, because it'll just depower everything that follows it, because it'll be expecting something. Well, and this is my this is my suggestion to people who watch movies, right? Which is pretty much everybody on the globe. Mm-hmm. stop expecting things just like <laughs> just watch the movie it doesn't matter how many times you've seen a movie it is so easy to get lost in it if you just like just stop what you're doing stop thinking about your everyday life and just get lost in a story for just a minute you know yeah. it's a magical experience it's something that i do every time i turn on a film and it's a good escape from your normal life. And if, if you stop expecting things, you get surprises like this and you will shriek just like I do. Just get lost. Get lost in the movies. It's magical and wonderful. So that you're going to need a bigger boat scene is easily one of the greatest lines in the film and one of the most famous in film history. And yet it wasn't planned. In fact, it was thought up by uh, Roy Scheider in the moment. It was actually pulled by Scheider from a common refrain by those working on the movie. It started when the boat meant to like steady a barge carrying everything from like lights to craft services was deemed too small, which <laughs> constantly happened during the shoot. And everyone would say, we're going to need a bigger boat. And so he was just making that in. Yeah, he was just making that in joke, you know, as one of the takes and it worked. <laughs> oh, my God. It's iconic. That's wonderful. Yeah. When John Williams first demonstrated his idea for the film score to Spielberg playing just the two notes on the piano, Spielberg was said to have laughed out loud, <laughs> thinking it was a joke. <laughs> this is what I'm thinking. Da-na, 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 on the piano. And he was just like, well, I'm going to have to take some of your paycheck to cover this over budget. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to find someone else. Thanks. <laughs> I'm glad he ultimately trusted him. For sure. My God, it's like an integral part of this movie. So on March 24th, 2020, it was announced that Donna Fior will direct and choreograph Bruce, the musical retelling of the behind the scenes story of Jaws, with Richard Orbacher writing the <laughs> musical book uh, and lyrics by uh, Ro- uh, and Robert Taylor working on the music and is set to premiere from June to July in 2021 at the Paper Mill Playhouse in Milburn, New Jersey. 
oh, we're going to see this. <laughs> Literally about the making, the behind the scenes story of Jaws, <laughs> not about Jaws itself. What I mean, like hell? I said, it's a very storied history, though. I can totally see this being a musical. I love it. I w- I, I'm there for it. Okay, Donna, we will be there front row. Mm-hmm. Promise you. Though respected as an actor, Robert Shaw's trouble with alcohol was a frequent source of tension during filming. In later interviews, Roy Scheider described his co-star as a perfect gentleman when he's sober. All he needed was one drink, and then he turned into a competitive son of a bitch. (laughs) According to Carl uh, Gottlieb's book, The Jaws Log, Shaw was having a drink between takes, at which one point he announced, I wish I could get drinking. Much to the surprise and horror of the crew, Richard Dreyfuss simply grabbed Shaw's glass and tossed it into the ocean. <laughs> and they didn't get along. When it came, Clearly. Yeah. When it came time to shoot the infamous USS Indianapolis scene in the monologue, Shaw attempted to do the monologue while intoxicated, as it called for the men to be drinking late in the night. Nothing in the take could be used. A remorseful Shaw called Steven Spielberg late that night and asked if he could have another try. The next day of shooting, Shaw's electrifying performance was done in one take sobriety there's something to be said about it i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't know really but I mean. so yeah like this was his one shot you know at this giant monologue oscar worthy monologue and he fucked it up because he was drinking you know um so of course you know he he called and if spielberg hadn't let him do that they wouldn't have that scene and that scene wouldn't be in the movie and my god they need to have that scene in the movie because like we talked about earlier it takes a tonal shift into more adventure and you have to have that horrific moment to realize how dangerous the thing that they are hunting actually is it's Mm -hmm. just perfect and i can't imagine anybody else like delivering that monologue there was also other problems with him because like any day that he wasn't shooting he would like try to uh, fly up to canada and go back and forth because he was on the run from the irs <laughs> God, yeah. So he. Why don't they make yeah. a musical about Robert Shaw? They probably probably is going to have a lot of that <gasps> in the musical. Honestly, oh my God, you're right. I can because only he imagine was a big part the of the drama making this. So, IRS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So all the money that he made in the movie had to go back uh, to the IRS, so he didn't make any money from from his appearance in Jaws because he owed Poor so much. Shaw. Yeah. Think how did you win that Oscar? They would have taken that too. They're like, this is sort of gold. We'll take this. <laughs> so, several decades after the release of Jaws, Lee Fierro, who played Ms. Kent- uh, Mrs. Kentner, uh, whose you know son died mm-hmm. in the film, walked into a seafood restaurant and noticed that the menu had an Alex Kentner sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I was mid drink. <laughs> That's gross. <laughs> she commented that she had played his mother so many years ago. The owner of the restaurant ran out to meet her, and it was none other than Jeffrey Voorhees, who'd played her son. Oh, they had his not seen- Yeah. <laughs> Interesting connection there. <laughs> yeah, the kid who gets killed in Jaws, you know, is ends up being, you know jason Voorhees in that movie so interesting connection there but anyway they had not seen each other since the original movie shoot and so that was just <laughs> interesting that she saw that in the menu and he he ran out there oh my god that's a, that's a fascinating story I know. <laughs> but my last one is even more fascinating 
So when George Lucas came to visit friends Spielberg and uncredited screenwriter John Milius in the special effects shop, he stuck his head inside Bruce's mouth for a photo op. Spielberg and Milius decided to play a prank on George Lucas and close Bruce's jaws on him. (laughs) But the controls jammed, leaving Lucas stuck inside. So Bruce's jaws had to be pried open over reportedly three hours in order to release George Lucas's head. <laughs> oh, that's really fucking hilarious. And I'm sure in that time, that dark mouth, he was like, space. What can I do about space? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Oh my god, that's fucking hilarious. So I, I've come across that story several times, um, but only in a couple does it say it took three hours. So that might be an embellishment. But uh, it's still funny nonetheless. It seems to be true that he <laughs> stuck head in Bruce for any amount of time. I mean, I prefer an embellished story, so it's fine. Three <laughs> hours is perfect. And I don't, I mean, I don't know how I feel about George Lucas, really. So I'm not quite sad that his head was stuck inside a shark's mouth for three hours. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Those were good and fun. I love it when the fun facts are super fun that make me laugh out loud and almost spit out my drink like Robert Shaw would not have done. So, (laughs) but after the fun facts, like always, we have a series of questions we like to ask about the movies that we watch here on the Film Flamers. And we're going to start with, were you scared while watching Jaws? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Jaws is a terrifying movie, and it's got lots of suspense, and I, it really plays with the what you can't see is more terrifying than what you can. And I think that a lot of people along the years have sort of, like, copied that a little bit. Well, I knew the, so. the major hits, you know, but watching it this time, I hadn't seen it in a number of years, uh, probably like 10 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd forgotten how much, you know, how much Count and Mouse you know, kind of goes on when they're in the Orca, you know, how it kind of out continually outsmarts them and, and straight up attacks them aggressively, breaks the ship at night, you know, and there's a lot of stuff that I had forgotten about, you know, and it's just like watching it for the first time again after, you know, having so much time between, you know, this time and the last time I'd seen it. And so I did get to experience a lot of that fear, um, you know, and, you know, suspense that I, I had forgotten was in the movie. And so that was, uh, it was fun. Jaws is not a movie that I watch all the time. Mm-mm. Like you said, I mean, like there, there's many years that go in between my viewings of Jaws and I mean, for a myriad of reasons, you know, but I, whenever I do sit down and watch it, I am always scared. I forget about the jump scares that are there. It's super effective as far as like horror filmmaking goes, but that sort of leads into our next question. Would you call Jaws a horror movie? I would definitely. I mean, it's all the requirements are there. I'll say that. Uh, for a horror movie. And I I I think there's a conversation to be had about how we talk about Jaws. You know, um, do we talk about it as the first blockbuster? Um, you know, or is it one of the most famous and classic horror movies ever made? We don't really talk about it as a horror movie. I don't think colloquially, uh, I don't think in pop culture, people talk about it as a horror movie. I think they just talk about it as Jaws, kind of in and of itself, as its own phenomenon, separate from genre. And that's interesting to me. I, I don't think we can think of many other films in that in that regard. I think they're all tied intrinsically to their genre. I feel like Jaws, I don't know if transcends is the right word, but it, it's not talked about um, 
I don't know that it transcends horror. I think it transcends genre just because of how famous it is, how iconic it is and how it's talked about. Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of there with that answer and I'm sort of like a little different. I think that a lot of people would consider Jaws just Jaws. Like Jaws is itself is its own movie, has its own lore. And everyone, especially the people who saw it in the theaters in the 70s, like have an idea or remembrance of what it was like to see Jaws and have that kind of experience. But also those people leave the theater talking about how terrified they were and how it affected their lives in a certain way afterward. And I think that those are sort of like the hallmark callings of a horror movie. And so, yeah, I mean, I would definitely call Jaws horror, but I think there's a lot more going on too, like beneath the surface of Jaws. It's very like Melville's very Moby Dick. And I mean, even Moby Dick is scary in certain parts when you talk about like, like the inner turmoil and madness of a certain character. I really think that Jaws is a very accessible movie, right? Mm -hmm. Especially for a horror film. And I think that it works on layers for everybody. I think that Jaws presents a problem and shows you three different ways to solve it, right? So we have science, which is played by hooper we have like some sort of like spiritualism or madness which is part of uh quint and then we have this every man hero which is brody and i think that everybody can sort of like grasp onto something in jaws and run away with it and love it for those particular reasons Mm -hmm. but it is kind of singular in that even if we talk about like silence of the lambs and people argue oh that's not a horror movie that's a thriller or you know Mm -hmm. it's a drama and it's like they have more of an argument there versus jaws is a straight-up horror movie right yeah and there is a lot there but you know every film does have a lot you know other than just the, the monster or you know depending on the film you're talking about but you know i think that jaws kind of stands out as like this watershed moment that kind of transcends genre at least in the way we talk about or remember it and it's 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 very much its own thing and uh but if if we had to you know if anyone had to pick a genre it's definitely horror yeah i mean so like we could even call jaws horror adjacent i suppose but i think that at the end of the day it really is just a horror movie if you want to like look at the bare bones part of the story there's a giant creature living in a place that we can't see it we don't know when it's coming we don't know what it can do to you and at the end of the day that's incredibly horrifying and so adjacency can be pushed away and we can just say this is a horror film agreed so out of five stars what would you rate jaws i believe i rated it a four out of five i also give it four stars out of five Mm -hmm. I'm not really comfortable giving it a five-star rating, even though I know that it's a very influential, studied, watershed moment film. But I have some problems with the movie itself, right? I I really enjoy the first half of this movie, or maybe even the first third, when the tension is building and everything is on shore and you just don't know what's happening. And I think that Spielberg is at his most masterful at those particular moments of like tension building and suspense. And then once they get on the boat, I get a little bored sometimes. I'm like, wrap it up. Come on. Well, I think that's the film that 
that Spielberg wanted to make was, you know, he was obsessed with that last third of the book that takes place on the Orca. But what Spielberg does best, you know, is some of that setup, you know, the the family life and things like that. When he got he gave us one scene there. But to this day, I still have confusion. Oh, there was two sons and there's the smallest one that he has that moment with and the oldest one that goes into shock. I still have some confusion of what that family life is. And I feel like there could have been a little bit more prop up of that, of what that heart of that is you know I, I still am kind of confused on his background or everything else it's not really important to the film but is there still like some confusion and murkiness there you know and i know that he can only spend so much time on that you know the the bit on the orca is the most pivotal and important of the film as far as how it handles the shark and those three characters and and what they're all about and and how they wrap up the film and take care of this this um this monster and ultimately defeat it you know but you know, I, I feel like it's a little bit inconsistent. It's, it's so good. And I admire this film so much. And I know how influential it is, but I don't love it. I'm not in love with it. You know, I have to, you know, it's just so expertly done on so many levels. And it came out of so much adversity during filming and everything else. And it was so many different rewrites and everything, you know, for it to be what it is and exist as you know, even as a film for all the stuff it went through, you know, I, I can't give it less than a four star, but I can't get myself to, to rate it higher. I think it's safe to say that this is the hardest four star rating we've ever given. Yeah, maybe. Right. You know, like you want to go back and you want to talk about things like its history and its production and the lore behind Jaws and just the way that it's affected movies moving forward. I mean, cinema will never be the same thanks to Jaws and Steven Spielberg. And yet his movie has some problems. And so you have to just like give your rating based on your gut reactions and just how you react to movies and film in general. And look, you're talking about characters and especially Roy Scheider's character. Yeah. He doesn't have a lot of time to do all those things and say everything that he needs to say. He certainly changed the book a lot, but maybe if he had just like peppered in a couple things, it would have made the movie a different, you know, a little better. Mm -hmm. And also I just like, I think the first part of this movie is a horror movie. And the second part is an action movie. And I just like the horror better. And I would have rather seen a whole bunch more of that. So fair enough. All right. So finally, and some might say most important, who's the hottest guy in Jaws? I have no fucking idea. I know. For a movie that's like mostly men, what is that called? A sausage fest earlier? <laughs> I mean, like, I mean uh, Richard Dreyfus for me? Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd have to I feel like like intellectually, Roy Scheider to me. I like the, the kind of the Gregory Peckian kind of characters, but he's not quite there. Um, Richard Dreyfus was cute as a, you know, when he was younger. So yeah, I might have to just like default to Richard Dreyfuss, but really as far as like heartthrobs, you know, male or female in this movie, it is slim Pickens. Maybe that guy who was chasing Chrissy on the beach, yeah. who couldn't get his clothes I off. To, I, you know? that. <laughs> I mean, like maybe him, I guess, but I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Dreyfus is cute in this movie. He's got those quippy one-liners when he's like doing that affected voice when he's like driving the boat and he's like, I won't take this abuse no more or whatever. I'm like, <laughs> you know what? I'd probably fuck you just because you make me laugh. <laughs> so, but ugh, I don't like it when we have a movie and I can't like pick out the hottest <laughs> guy in it. <laughs> yeah. It makes me sad. 
Anywho, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Jaws. Uh, we know that everybody in the world has seen this movie. And if you haven't, after you listen to this podcast, go and watch it because you're missing out on something special. So we want to know what your opinions about Jaws are and what you thought about our conversation here about it. You can let us know all these things on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or you can call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Call in, leave your voicemail, we'll play it on the next Shooting the Flames, and we'll respond to it. Speaking of which, our next Shooting the Flames episode is our 100th episode of the Film Flamers, and we want to create something special, and we really want to hear your voices and what you think about our podcast, so just call in. You can talk about Jaws, you can talk about any episode that you want to, or just you know let us know if you like us or not we're gonna play all those clips on that shooting the flames episode also when shooting the flames we like to call out our patrons and reviews so if you're listening to this podcast on apple podcast or itunes head over and give us a five-star review a little snippet of why you like us we're gonna read those reviews on shooting the flames and head over to patreon.com slash the film flamers and find all of our bonus content and we're starting to get a lot of engagement over there we're putting some polls out about what you might like us to cover for bonus content and um it's a growing and fun community what are we doing this month on patreon we're doing a dread that's right action horror adjacent at its finest i haven't seen dread yet so i'm looking forward to that (laughs) it is its finest so i'm hoping you'll enjoy it i looked up the cast and i literally know like nobody from it i'm like i don't know any of these people so you know carl urban and and you know uh, cersei lannister Oh, that's right. I forgot that she was in this too. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, I'm looking forward to seeing this movie. Well, Chris, it's kind of hot here in Texas, and I think that I'm ready for a swim. Oh, well, you best be careful. Donna. 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 All right. I'm going to go and float and have some sweet dreams. Can you imagine what it'd be like if you were like in the ocean and then somehow like you heard that music playing in the background? <laughs> Just like in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> yeah, you're like, fuck! <laughs> if I was floating in the middle of the ocean and I heard that, I'd be like, oh my god, someone's playing it. <laughs> Someone save me. <laughs> I know. Rescue! I'm being rescued. No, it's a shark. <laughs>